0: Welcome guys and gals to the Man Talks Podcast. I'm Connor Beaton, the host and founder of Man Talks. This podcast brings together some of the best thought leaders, teachers, and extraordinary individuals to help teach and mentor you on how to be a top performer in life, love, and business. Joining me today is Professor Brian Keating, who is an astrophysicist with the University of California, San Diego's Department of Physics. He and his team develop instrumentation to study the early universe at radio, microwave, and infrared wavelengths. He's also the author of over 100 scientific publications and holds two U.S. patents. He's also received an NSF career award in 2006 and a 2007 presidential early career award for scientists and engineers at the White House from President Bush for a telescope that he invented and deployed at the US South Pole Research Station called Bicep. Brian is also a commercially licensed pilot with a single and multi-engine instrument and turbine ratings. He's a trusted he's a trustee of the National Museum of Mathematics or MoMath. Uh, less problems or more problems, I'm not too sure, Uh, and a member of the board of directors of the Arthur C. Clarke Center for Human Imagination, Math of America, San Diego, and the San Diego Air and Space Museum. Recently, he's also the author of a book called Losing the Nobel Prize, a story of cosmology, ambition, and the perils of science's highest honor. So he was uh, he was put forward to be a Nobel Prize winner. He didn't end up winning. There was a whole bunch of, uh, you know, drama around that. Uh, and he shares a little bit of experience. But the whole point of today's conversation, oh, and by the way, before I forget, he's also married and the father of five kids. Like this guy, this guy does everything. In fact, he just had twins two days ago two days ago, he had twins. And after our interview, he was racing off to the hospital to pick up his wife and his newborn kids. And so if there was a super dad, this he might be it. He sounds like a, a very caring father. Um, but I'm just excited to talk to him because we are going to dive into uh, a little bit of everything on this podcast. I literally could have talked to him for hours and hours about astrology and uh, and and everything that he had to say. So so really, today we're, we're going to dive into astrophysics, we're going to dive into the Big Bang Theory, um, obviously not the TV show, but the actual theory and event itself. We're going to talk about the inner workings of the universe, but we're going to do it in such a way that's quite kind of interesting. We, we tie in time, he talks about time, uh, we, we talk about consciousness and how that might play a role in the inner workings of the universe. And uh, and he unfolds and unpacks some of the basic principles of astrophysics that we've maybe all heard of, but we don't quite understand. And so him and I have a great discussion about that. He also shares a little bit about his latest book and his journey on the road to the Nobel Prize, and a little bit about understanding our A-type nature and how anybody, whether it's a scientist or a musician or an artist, can lose their path on the pursuit of an accolade or or winning an award. And so, uh, it's a very interesting story that he talks about right at the right at the very tail end of this. After we get you know into all the science and and nerd out a little bit, because uh, that's really what I wanted to do. So, without any further delay. A huge and warm welcome, Uh, please welcome Brian Keating.
1: Oh, it's a real honor to be back with you, Conor.
0: Likewise, likewise. Let's just dive straight into the conversation because I have so much that I want to talk to you about today. I feel like uh, my most nerdy and geeky side uh, gets to come out in these conversations along with my philosopher side. So I'm excited. So let's just dive straight into the, the the question that I have to ask everybody, which is tell us a story about a defining moment that made you who you are today.
1: Yeah, I think the most defining moment that, you know, really set my life on the path that it ultimately took was uh, surprisingly a day I got fired. <laughs> I got fired the first time in my life, I was uh, what I thought was a hot shot post PhD. I got my PhD and, and after you get your PhD, you kind of enter this purgatory where you're not a graduate student and you're not a professor and you have to work on um, another professor's uh, experiment or theory or campaigns or whatever they do. And for me, that was working at Stanford University. And I was so excited to get this job at Stanford, um, you know, top schools in the whole world. And I was working for uh, a brand new professor, and she had hired me more or less sight unseen and based on the reputation that I uh, had, a, had a good aptitude for building telescopes that could understand and, and detect what the early universe was like. So I was working for her for several months, but this is in the late 90s, 1999, early 2000. And the Bay Area was not a great place to live uh, in the dot-com, heady days of the dot-com, you know, denouement uh, for a postdoc making $35,000 a year. Not really that much more than minimum wage. And so I was forced to, you know, take an apartment, basically on the train tracks in Silicon Valley, Uh, where the trains would run 24 hours a day, every 15 minutes, rattling my apartment like a magnitude four earthquake uh, just as I dozed off to sleep. Uh, And I became pretty miserable at that point. Um, And I'd also become really distracted. And I wasn't really working on the project that she had me originally scheduled for, which was to uh, uh, build build an instrument that could be used to observe from the Hawaiian islands on top of Mauna Kea. And I thought it was interesting, but I had been obsessed with this other idea for a telescope that I had come up with that was really based on An idea that I read about in a a theoretical paper on cosmology, and it suggested that if if one were to build a telescope in just the right way, one could actually take the universe's ultimate baby picture and take take an image of the universe as it was – When the universe had just barely come into existence, the trillionth of a trillionth of a trillionth of a second after the Big Bang, and I was obsessed with this paper, and I kept reading it and sketching out ideas in my notebooks, and and one day my boss came into the laboratory and just basically said, "You're fired," and (laughs) it was uh, it was a shock to me, you know, because I had uh, thought I was you know pretty bright guy, I could always land on my feet, and now here I was, the first time in my life basically unemployed uh, although she did agree to uh, a generous severance package where she would go out and you know try to foist me on somebody else <laughs> uh, to work for and, and she ended up putting me in touch with her former uh, postdoctoral advisor um, named a man named Andrew Lang who was a hotshot uh, professor at Caltech California Institute of Technology in Pasadena and I loved it down there I'd visited there once before I had a lot of friends there and the fact that she had you know generously offered to kind of put me in, in in touch with him and work for him was just uh really the the defining moment for me because after i left her laboratory I went to work for him and I ultimately took on this project and was able to get the backing of Andrew Lang and a group of other scientists at, at Caltech and build this experiment, which not only would take us back to the beginning of time, or so we hoped, but would take us to the bottom of the world, to the to the South Pole Antarctica, where the uh, southernmost axis of the Earth's rotational axis is located. So uh, we, we took that project, we, we, we designed it, we built it. And ultimately, it landed me a job at UC San Diego, where I am now, a couple of years after I'd gotten fired. And since I've been in UC San Diego, I met my my lovely wife. And uh, and now, as you know, we're blessed to have five children, <laughs> including twins that are barely a week old. So, uh, So none of that would have been possible if you changed any You know, any link in this chain that started with me being uh, a sloucher in another scientist's lab, that I would have this fortune to have this amazing life. If any of that didn't happen, my life would be completely undefined. And I would be uh, only the only thing I know for sure is I'd be worse off.
0: Mm, I love it, man. I, I think it's such an interesting to just look at the trajectory that your life has taken because of that one moment. I was, I was chuckling a little bit to myself because I was thinking to myself, you know, maybe what you should have called your book is astrophysicists get fired too (laughs) you know (laughs) right right maybe that's book number two you can tell your personal you can tell your personal story um well listen i I, you know i want to talk to you about a few things on the on the podcast today and i I really wanted to be able to dive into the world of science and in the world of astrophysics and and the universe, and the Big Bang, and and dark matter, and and you know, talk about uh, the Nobel Prize and your and your latest book. So why don't we just start uh, at the beginning? Why don't we start with with the foundation? Like, what what are some of the basics and 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 foundational, maybe not principles, but some of the foundations behind astrophysics? And why is it actually so important uh, to our everyday life?
1: Yeah. So just like with my twins, you know, I'm kind of like watching them grow and develop, and it's really the first, you know, week, the first month. I mean, in the ancient times and, you know, there's a couple thousand years ago, people wouldn't name their children for 30 days after they were born. And, and that was because, you know, so many children didn't make it to be that age. You know, God forbid anything happens like that to people nowadays, but, uh, but with med- modern medicine, you know, kids have a much better shot at life, but really it's that first moment. And, and even going even further back, you know, you look at, the moment of conception, and and then what was that? I always joke that's your own personal Big Bang, right? Or your parents had a Big Bang, and that's what made you. Uh, but but you know the really the beginning is what's critical. So now we look out in the universe, we see every single galaxy, with the exception of literally only a handful of other galaxies, we see every one of the hundred of bi- hundred billion galaxies we can observe with our most powerful optical telescopes. They're all rushing away from us. And, you know, you're there in New York City or, or, or wherever. And, you know, if you were to hear like an ambulance, uh, coming towards you, well, that would kind of, you know, seem to indicate that you're at the center of, you know, maybe there's an accident nearby. But if every ambulance in the, in the, uh, in the whole city was rushing away from you at the exact same time, you know, that would indicate that there was, you know, probably some huge disaster and they're taking patients away, uh, from, from the scene of the accident. So, you know, hopefully that won't happen during this, uh, during this discussion. But it seemed like the universe was sort of centered on on the Milky Way galaxy in which we inhabit and that all the galaxies like those ambulances were rushing away from us, which is quite oppositional to, you know, the way the city is probably or you know right now for you, where some ambulances are coming towards you, some are going away from you. And by listening to the to the pitch, to the Doppler shift, to the sound increase or decrease in the frequency of the ambulance's sirens, you could determine, you know, on average, are these ambulances moving towards me or away from me? And what we found was with the universe, all the sirens were, were being redshifted. They were all moving away from the Milky Way galaxy. So it either meant that the Milky Way galaxy was very special, the center of the universe's expansion, or if it could be shown that every galaxy moves away from every other galaxy, as, say, raisins in a, in a rising raisin bread do, uh, then the entire universe could be said to be expanding. But the question is, you know, when did that expansion begin? How did it begin? And that was the, that is the essence of the most powerful question, I think, in my field, which is, which is cosmology. How did the universe begin? What were those conception moments like for the cosmos? Was there a universe or some existence previous to our universe before what we call the Big Bang? Uh, Was there a universe that collapsed before our Big Bang and then created the, in the aftershocks, what everything that we see today? So these are, these are the open questions and these are the questions that my experiments, Are designed to
0: answer very cool very very cool i mean it's interesting because the field is so is so vast and touches on so many levels and i'm i'm curious just for you know maybe some of the listeners out there that aren't as familiar with this area and, and with some of the science what are some of the real life questions that that understanding how the universe works at its foundational level and 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 how it came into existence what are some real life questions that we might be able to to answer by uh, being able to uncover some of this knowledge and wisdom so
1: yeah i mean a lot of people again i you know i've got babies on the brain connor you know that but you know so so you know some people say well what good is it what you do you know you're yeah it's great to understand human knowledge and increase it so much and I, and i always say but like what what practical good is it And I'll say, well, you know, look at my baby. What practical good is the baby? I mean, it just needs a lot of attention. But a lot of things happen when you do things for what's called pure science or pure research. We're not expecting discoveries to lead to patentable inventions like dynamite or, you know, or the, or the, um, or the, or an iPhone or something like that. Uh, And actually, in my field does and has in the past led to tremendous breakthroughs in, in the telecommunications industry and also in low temperature. Um, electronics and and developments that have led to very low noise and high speed computing. So uh, ancillary benefits come about all the time. But the but the essence of your question is, you know, why is it important to do basic research? And I think it's part of what really defines us as human beings. We want to explore. We want to understand. And a natural urge is to understand where do we come from, and perhaps where will we go to, and what is the deep future of the cosmos likely to have in store and I think these are deep existential questions and they and they relate to the most uh you know the divisive in some cases or passionate in other cases uh theological philosophical um, instinctual urges that have really been based in the human psyche. I think you know Carl Jung and others spoke about this. Uh, the unconscious and, and going back to the earliest cave paintings, I mean, they were painting, you know, they didn't have, uh, you know, they didn't have Netflix back then, right? So they would watch the night sky, and they would come up with creation stories of how they came to be. And now we can quantify those creation stories. And and make them ever more precise. We'll never be able to understand exactly what happened at, at all moments with infinite precision, but it's our job to try to uncover because it's part of the human thirst to understand where we all came
0: from. I love it, man. And I think that we all do really have that thirst on some level, whether we explore that questioning through you know theological means or you know whether we explore it through science. I think that a lot of people really do have that uh, desire to understand where we came from. So uh, this kind of leads me into into the next question, which is, what are some of the common misconceptions? Because you know your your field is is so vast and and can be seen as very complex and complicated, and I think that there's room to misinterpret. Uh, Some of these basic principles and some of these foundational principles, like I think about the observer effect and how, you know, in in some areas of spirituality, people have taken the observer effect that, you know, seeing uh, particles at the quantum molecular level jump around. And when we observe them and that they behave differently uh, is taken to mean that that we you know, foundationally can affect every uh, particle in existence and kind of, you know, leads to these common misconceptions. So, so I'm curious from your perspective, what are some of the most prominent uh, uh, misconceptions that you see happening out there today?
1: Well, one of the most prominent is when we talk about theories, you know, we'll talk about what what the theory of gravity is, or the theory of evolution, or the Big Bang theory. And we'll use the same word. And I think it's kind of, you know, in the, popular conception of what the word theory means, it's kind of like a guess and and well, that's just your theory. Um, when in reality we have tremendous amounts of evidence for some of those theories, what we colloquially call theories. The theory of relativity is very well understood. The theory of evolution has many aspects that are well understood. Uh, the Big Bang theory has you know not, not the television show, but the but the theory itself on which the show's name comes, uh, is, is really understood up to a point. But some want worry and wonder that this notion of what came before and so forth can lead us down a slippery slope that we really aren't prepared to answer with the mathematics of the 21st century and the physical understanding that we currently have. And that maybe you know it will take centuries from now to understand what actually happened beforehand, whether it's advanced technology or advanced brains or advanced computing power. And so I think you know this notion of what a theory is. the The other you know kind of big problem I think that that I have with with you know kind of um, the way science is portrayed in in popular circles is that you know, sort of the universe is conceived to explode from like a single point, and that big bang explosion takes place like a shrapnel from a grenade or something like that. And the galaxies are just like that. And in that conception, that leads very naturally to the misapprehension that we are the center of the universe, because in that uh, analogy, everything's rushing away from a common center. The problem is that to understand what it really means in the cosmological sense of what the Big Bang was banging into and out of, it does require sophisticated understanding of of what's called, you know, four-dimensional space-time. So we need to understand that when, we, when we're looking at the world, our brains are so remarkable. You know, if you think about it, what are your retinas that you see things with? They're really like a sheet of optical sensors, like a, like a CCD camera in your iPhone or something like that. So th- that's a two-dimensional structure just because, you know, length and width. But with the fact that we have two eyes from two two-dimensional sensors, the brain can synthesize a three-dimensional image of the world and give us depth. But actually, we can't see inside of something, right? You can't see inside of your computer. You can't see inside of the Earth. Uh, so you really can't see in three dimensions. And what makes it harder even for cosmology and understanding of the Big Bang is that we need four dimensions. So how does something with just two-dimensional eyes understand something that's in four dimensions – uh, but it's a lot of fun to try to explain it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it seems it seems like a very complex uh, complex way of of processing because that is one of the that is one of the challenges that I see and, and hear a lot of people uh, facing is this misconception that the Big Bang and that the universe uh, sort of you know started out of something that's infinitesimally smaller than you know the uh, the size of a pinhead uh, and sort of expanded outwards and when we think about that it's almost like this conceptual visualization that we get is is it expanded outwards in like this linear fashion right so there was a there was a point and it's almost like this projectile uh, moves forward in that space and time that's being created so instead of that how can we start to think about the Big Bang in its truest form?
1: Yeah, so the Big Bang—the way that we can think about it—is that that point actually is true that they that the universe, you know, the matter in our observable universe, if you will, was event, you know, essentially in a very finite-sized volume, maybe not. Infinitesimally, like a true singularity with no dimensionality, zero dimension, a point smaller than a point. But perhaps that, that the universe is in a, in a finite volume and that, but that finite volume sort of exists everywhere in a much bigger domain. So you can imagine that, you know, the analogy that, that you could use is that you have this explosion taking place and in each, um, and in e- e- each part of this uh, infinite you know, gymnasium or or infinite set of monkey bars, and at each part where the monkey bars intersect, there could be an explosion like the Big Bang. So the universe is infinite because the because this this really, I mean, infinity is a big big thing. <laughs> I mean, you really can't conceive of it. Um, just like Woody Allen said, eternity is a long time, especially towards the end. And you know, infinity is really big, especially towards the beginning when the when everything in the universe was infinitely hot, infinitely dense. So all parts of the universe expanding away from each other in four dimensions, you can sort of analogize it as, you know, the, the expansion taking place everywhere uh, in this larger space. And then you're sort of projecting from three dimensions, a, a two-dimensional or uh, sorry, a four di- from four dimensions, a three-dimensional uh, uh, visualization of what that would look like. So locally, yeah, space is is expanding and separation between galaxies is taking place. And if you were to run that back, to time equals zero, then it would be you know the matter that we can see today at uh, both our far you know largest telescopes the farthest we can see out goes out uh, to you know fourteen billion years uh, almost, and it's about forty six billion light years uh, in diameter. But if you if you try to compress infinity, you know down to a finite size, you're still always going to be left with a lot of infinity out there. So it's very difficult to conceive of it in and with our two-dimensional eyes are, at best, three-dimensional visual system. So the way to think about it is that the universe is infinite in some sense, or at least it could be infinite. We don't know if it's actually infinite. But that the expansion, and it will keep continue expanding forever, but even if you take something that's an infinite sheet of rubber and you and you compress it in all directions, it's still infinite in size, isn't it? So that that's sort of the best that we can do in terms of making this visualization. But there certainly wasn't a single point, a center of the universe that we could say go to, because every single thing in the universe is moving away from every other thing in the universe.
0: Yeah, I mean it's interesting because I think one of the analogies that you had used before that kind of stuck out with me because it's 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 hard to conceptualize some of these things but once you you know once we once we provide some of these sort of more base level analogies we can start to understand them better. But one of the things that you had said before that really stuck with me is this idea that you know the Big Bang was almost like raisin bread, I think you said. <laughs> and yeah. maybe maybe you could give the analogy because I, I'm sure I'll botch it and just confuse people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well yeah. So we see the aftermath of the Big Bang. So speaking as the singular of the singularity, you know, kind of putting that behind us, what we see is the aftermath of the of this expansionary phase of the universe. And right now, the universe is expanding, and the expansion is getting faster every second. So the distance between—I mean, if you imagine a bread, you know, and there's raisins in it, and you're cooking it, and the raisin bread's expanding. Actually, I had a—I had a student of mine. Uh, actually, make me a raisin bread and take pictures of it as <laughs> at different phases in the in the culinary process, including the cooking process. I thought it was kind of cute because you know we all talk about the raisin bread, et cetera, but no one's ever goes out and makes one, and and then you know shows that there is a, a good analogy between the, the two phenomena. So every raisin will move away from every other raisin because the dough between consecutive raisins if you like are all um are all uh, inflating and expanding that means if you sit on any one raisin you look out at any other raisin you could say that every raisin's moving away from me and you'd be correct but if any other raisin can say that then there is no center of the universe and there is no center of the raisin bread but again you have to imagine infinite raisin bread there's no boundary to it so you know be uh, as as Calorie-packed as you could possibly imagine.
0: <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Calorie-packed as, as you could possibly imagine. Um, cool. Okay. So so now that, we're, now that we're on that space, one of the things that you focus in on specifically in your work is the Big Bang and, and, and specifically... Right at the very beginning, or or as close to the beginning as we could possibly get, and you know some of the work that you've done and the instrumentation that you have built has really been in and around inf- inflation, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah. you maybe unpack for for the for like the layperson what inflation is and and why it's relevant uh, in the grand scheme of things in the creation of the universe. Yeah, so it's interesting.
1: The task of cosmologists is sort of to be a firefighter and an arsonist at the same time. So what I mean by that is that we start all these fires, we ask all these questions, and then we put out the fire. And then in putting out the fire, we start another one because we it leads us to ask more questions. So the Big Bang was originally, you know, disfavored and people didn't believe there was a Genesis like event where there was a singular creation of the universe or origin of the universe for thousands of years, from Aristotle to Einstein scientists of the highest magnitude believed the universe was eternal and had existed forever and was static and unchanging besides you know the motion of the planets and an occasional comet or two but when uh, edwin hubble and others discovered that the universe was full of galaxies uh, other than our own that were all as i said rushing away from us at astronomical speeds you know 10% 20% 30 50 almost 90% of the speed of light so they were moving away just tremendously rapidly. The question that that, uh, that, that you know, then solved. So, so it overthrew the, the paradigm that the universe was static. Uh, but in doing so, it begged the question, well, what started the expansion in the first place? And so scientists didn't really understand this for about 50 years. And most of them thought it was ludicrous because, as I say, you know, uh, often in the book, you know, it was basically uh, suggesting that the universe had a, had a, had a single point in time. When everything came into existence ex nihilo, from nothing, and that was sort of abhorrent to people at that time uh, because it may, meant that from a vacuum came the universe. And, and that sounded a little bit too much like the biblical creation narrative for most secular scientists' uh, desires. So what ended up happening was a cosmologist in the late seventies, also at Stanford, but uh, a much you know brighter person, and he he was also a postdoc, and, and he was a little worried about being unemployed soon too, uh, not being fired, but but actually having to get a permanent job. His name is Alan Guth, and he came up with some ideas that seemed to suggest that if the universe was filled with a very mysterious type of force field called the inflaton that the universe could expand and it could expand so fast that in the briefest amount of time literally a trillionth of a second less than a trillionth of a second the universe's all of its major properties including the fact that it would be expanding as we speak would be explained in a consistent self-contained relatively simple set of equations that seem to be consistent with observations of the of the universe's basic properties its size its 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 density, it's what's called its curvature, and all these things were all, all, all these major problems with the Big Bang that were completely unexplored, un, unexplained. And there was no reason why the universe was expanding because, after all, if the universe has matter in it and matter is always gravitationally attractive, there's no anti-gravity, then something had to be acting like anti-gravity to make the universe expand. And what that anti-gravitational force field was, was inflation.
0: Very cool. Okay, that's a, <laughs> that's a pretty darn good analogy. And so where does, where do this sort of like, I know that one of the ways that scientists have discovered that the universes or the galaxies are, are moving apart from each other is in the actual wavelengths and, and being able to detect infrared and sort of seeing that everything's moving away from everything else. How does that play into or does it even play into the Big Bang?
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. So remember earlier we were talking about ambulances in a city. Mm-hmm. So you'd expect on average all the ambulances are kind of moving randomly with respect to you. There's nothing important about your location unless you were to you know, hear mm-hmm. them and you would hear their sirens all getting louder and louder and higher and higher in frequency or shorter and shorter in wavelength, and that's called the Doppler shift. Well, the Doppler shift can affect light as well. So if light, a source of light, say if you take a flashlight – And you come running towards me, or if you take, say, a green laser, and you run away from me holding that green laser, pointing it at me, and you can move a good fraction of the speed of light, then the wavelength of the laser that I perceive will be red. So that's called a red shift. It goes from a, a bluer or greener color to a redder color. And that dependence can be exactly inverted to tell you the velocity of the source, and its relative motion with respect to you. Hmm. So you can do the same with an ambulance and if, and measure the ambulance's um, the pitch, the frequency of the ambulance's siren that you perceive and note what it is when it passes right by you and it'll go from being a blue shifted higher in frequency to then being red shifted and that effect is observed with galaxies in the in the infrared as you said and in the visible light And so that was the first evidence that Hubble in the 1920s really used persuasively to argue that the universe was not static and was expanding. We didn't know what it was expanding from, and that's what inflation had to come along and solve.
0: Very cool. Very very cool. Okay, thanks for that explanation, because I think that might help clear up a, a few things for a few people. Um, and then mm-hmm. before, because I do want to dive into you know the Nobel Prize and and some of the some of the pieces around your journey to that. But I think one of the other big questions that seems to be looming uh, in and around this this whole piece. If I'm to stick with your analogy of the raisin bread is the actual bread itself is everything that's between planets that we really are struggling to understand. So maybe unpack a little bit for the listeners, uh, dark matter and dark energy and how they sort of fit in this uh, whole universal equation that we've been talking about.
1: Yeah. So that's the biggest puzzle right now in cosmology, other than the exact origin of the universe. But it's actually, of course, intimately related to it. So there are theories that suggest that there might have been a universe that existed before our universe and underwent a collapse. Instead of a bang, it underwent a big crunch. And when things crunched together, the properties of the previous universe were completely obliterated, basically uh, you know, becoming an enormous... Uh, black hole at first and everything coming together. And then from something we don't really understand, uh, basically spraying out all the matter again and in, in what would be like almost like a white hole, the opposite of a black hole. But included in that are these mysterious force fields. One is called dark energy and the other is called dark matter. And dark matter is really kind of a misnomer. It's not that it's, you know, black, like, you know, a chunk of coal floating around in space. Um, that kind of uh, evidence has been ruled out by astronomical observations. But instead, it's more, I would call it more invisible matter. So it's it's matter that doesn't interact with light. So it's not that it's dark. So I can have, you know, in front of me, uh, you know, the microphone uh, filter that blocks out sound. Uh, pop filter whatever, and then uh, that's black and dark and it absorbs light but you could also have a uh, but but if it were made of say neutrinos the neutrinos are mysterious particles that have no interactions with ordinary matter they only interact with uh, with electrons very sparingly and, and what's called the the weak nuclear force <clears throat> but be that as it may they don't inter- they don't give off light. And, and they don't interact with light. So if you were to have that, so they're invisible. They can go right through your eyes. They can go right through your cameras. And, and so you cannot see them and detect them in any way. They're like stealth matter. And that's what dark matter we think is like. We don't think it's only made of neutrinos. Dark energy, you know what? We know nothing about it. We know absolutely nothing about it. We know that it exists in the bulk notion of it. That, in other words, the universe is filled with it and it dominates the amount of energy in the universe by a factor of you know 2 to 1 over matter but in but in actuality we have no evidence for it we can't even make an analog to it Uh, Because there's nothing that we have, it acts as anti-gravity. And we don't really have a good analogy for that. Whereas dark matter, we can analogize it with neutrinos and things that are passing through our bodies right now. Uh, They're produced in nuclear reactions in the sun and radioactivity in the earth. So right now, you know, there's trillions of of dark matter and visible matter particles going through you. But, uh, but dark energy is not as easily um, described in such a way. So those are very mysterious things. And, 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 and that's part of the aim of the experiments that we do to attempt to qu- first to do the taxonomy, you know, kind of classify how much there is, where is it located, what are its basic properties before we can really understand, is it a new particle of dark matter? Is there like a, you know... Instead of an electron, a neutron or whatever, there's a crouton or, you know, what, what is the dark matter particle? We don't know. Uh, dark energy is even more mysterious. We know much, much less about dark matter, about dark energy than dark
0: matter. Very cool. Very, very cool. And then, and then finally, I think my, my, my sort of, you know, last question here is really around how and if, and, and just kind of getting your perspective on how consciousness might interplay with the creation of the universe as we know it in existence because i think that some people have tried to you know connect consciousness to the universal creation and to interaction with the universe and and say it's a very integral part Uh, other people you sort of refute that uh you know and and i think that there's some controversy around defining what consciousness actually is in its in its sort of base form Um, but i'm curious from from a cosmologist standpoint how do you see the the potential of consciousness Impacting our, our universe and its creation and its functionality.
1: Yeah, so quantum mechanics is is also the the describing the physics of a very weird. Um, so how does the how does the universe t- uh, behave? Not on the largest scales of the cosmos that I study, but on the most microscopic scales of particles, of fundamental forces and fields, <clears throat> and it's, uh, it's it's it has a lot of uh, very powerful things to say about the uh, the evolution of the universe, because, you know, like if you look at a, um, if you ever seen like a sequoia tree, you know, it's enormous. And then, but it comes from like a, a really small seed. The seed of a sequoia is minute. So the properties of enormous things can sometimes be determined by the arrangements and the, and the properties of small, much, much smaller things. In this case, the properties of neutrinos have, uh, for example, great impact, their quantum properties on the distribution of matter that we see in the universe, uh, and so understanding the quantum mechanical properties of the universe itself, I think those are those are incredibly important to the evolution of the later day universe.
0: Very cool. Very very cool. Okay, so that kind of gives some some good perspective. And then let's let's move into the book because I'm curious about this. You you just recently wrote a book called Losing the Nobel Prize. And, you know, it sort of sums up some of your experience and your journey. Maybe give give us a, a summary of this, because I think it's a very interesting look at something that from an external and observer perspective, you know, we, we look at the Nobel Prize as this very highly coveted thing. Um, so, so maybe just give us some background around why you actually wrote the book and, and uh, what we can expect from it. Yeah, well, I like to say first off, it's not a how-to guide. Okay? It's not, <laughs> Damn it,
1: <laughs> it's not how to how to win a Nobel Prize. There are actually books written of how to win a Nobel Prize, which I think are, even though they're written by uh, in some cases Nobel laureates, I think they're kind of silly uh, because you know it's like um, imagine you read a book, you know, how to win the lottery. Like a, a lot of a lot of the Nobel Prize comes down to luck and connections and who you know and what you know and and it's unfortunate because a lot of the Egos and a lot of the personalities involved in sciences as as a whole in some way devolve around this notion of credit and the ultimate form of credit in the sciences and even in humanity as a whole is the Nobel Prize, Uh, that there's no real honor that seems to carry as much weight or accolade in the public's mind and it's become you know kind of a cultural touchstone as well where you know you'll have people in the Nobel Prize uh community that have won the prize and they'll come out and they'll they'll write petitions on who you should vote for or what treaties congress should do and and uh, what kinds of food you should eat um and certainly on things like global warming so they become ambassadors for in in kind of a global sense and you know that's fine and i think you know it could be okay there's a little bit of the halo effect of, you know, uh, how, how much does a cosmologist who won the Nobel Prize, you know, who's in his late 80s now, how much does he really have to say about, you know, what uh, what kind of, um, you know, stance the United States should have with Iran or something like that? But be that as it may, um, the, the Nobel Prize is really not living up to, I think, the lofty ideals that Alfred Nobel uh, intended so nobly. A hundred and thirty and twenty years ago, which were to uh, reward the practice of science for the benefit of humanity. And back then when he wrote down his will, he wrote down his will and and the uh, after the year 1888. When he was kind of walking around Paris and he saw the headline in the Parisian newspaper where he was living and it said, Alfred Nobel is dead. The merchant of death himself is dead. and described him as killing more people in history through his invention and patent on dynamite than any other person who had ever lived. And it shocked him. It was kind of like Ebenezer Scrooge. And, and of course, the, the report of his demise was, was radically exaggerated. It was his older brother who died. But he realized this is the way he's going to be remembered if he were to die right now. So in a brilliant act of, of posthumous public relations, he wrote down this will to endow prizes for literature, peace, chemistry, bio, uh, medical sciences or physiology uh, and physics and literature. And this uh, kind of came about in my mind when my experiment announced a result that uh, turned out to be uh, retracted and uh, that we were immediately, though, before the retraction came for almost a year. Uh, basically, it seemed like we were all but guaranteed to win a Nobel Prize. I had been sort of forced out in an interesting scenario. This is the experiment that I created after being fired at Stanford and moving down to Caltech uh, following the uh, suicide of my beloved mentor, Andrew Lang, that I mentioned earlier. The leadership of the project was taken over by a group at Harvard, and they ran the project very differently than I think Andrew Lang would have run it. And in so doing, they kind of forced out me, even the 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 original leader or the founder of the project. So it was kind of a, a mixed bag for me in that, you know, we had this announcement, we made headlines around the world, front page of every newspaper in the world, a viral video on YouTube with you know, 3 million hits instantly. And then looking over uh, the course of what happened, how the Nobel Prize influences the decisions of scientists to make the claims that they do and should try to stake the priority for those claims so that they won't lose the Nobel prize themselves. And, you know, I wasn't savvy enough to figure that out early on, but I think now I've seen what, what the Nobel prize can do to scientists who most people think of as dispassionate seekers of truth. Uh, but in actuality we're human beings and we have the same kind of biases, flaws and, and peccadilloes as anybody else. Following that episode in 2014 and 2015, I was asked to nominate the winners of the 2016 Nobel Prize, which (laughs) kind of, you know, bittersweet to me. So I got this letter in the mail from the Swedish Royal Academy of Sciences, and they said, Professor Keating, we want you to nominate the 2016 winners of the Nobel Prize. And I presume they did that because they were expecting the discovery to go for a cosmological or astronomical discovery. But in my case, uh, I ended up doing a little bit of background research and found a tremendous amount of, say, let us say transgressions against what Alfred Nobel wanted in his will, which was that, uh, you know, the prizes would go uh, to very rapidly awarded to discoveries made in the preceding year by a single person um, for the benefit of all of mankind. And I started to wonder, you know, what other things have they changed in the Nobel Prize? And, and the book explores how the Nobel Prizes d- devolved so radically, from what Alfred Nobel intended, that I suspect that Alfred Nobel, if he were around today, would be rolling around in his grave,
0: <laughs> yeah, so interesting man. I mean, I think you know the 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 book and just the concept in your story really not only humanizes um different fields that we would look at uh, in a very specific way but but starts to help us remember that everybody can fall into that trap of pursuing knowledge or results, uh, for the wrong reasons and, and, and to pursue those, to, to pursue that success for the accolades, for the prize or for the, you know, the, the, the big celebration at the end of the result. And I think that that's a trap that we normally see artists fall into and athletes, um, but not something that we normally think that scientists, uh, would fall into. And so it's really interesting to hear that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I talk about in the book how, you know, how the the realms of hollywood with the oscars and and you see the same thing in the olympics uh and and, and sports as you say and of course you know the ultimate accolade in politics is you know lead, running and winning presidency so people set their eyes on goals and and then you know there's only one president right so that means that there's you know 330 million non-presidents there's only you know one on uh, Best Actor every year. And that means you know there's hundreds of thousands of other actors or actresses that don't win that. So I say my book is written for anyone who lost the Nobel Prize or lost an Oscar or lost an Emmy or lost their high school class presidency. It doesn't matter. When you set your identity and base your identity in the way that you think of yourself on the accolades of external people, as the Nobel Prize does to scientists, then i think you surrender a little bit of your identity and maybe that causes some damage to your soul and so the book is really written in such a way as to give hope you know to people on what it's like to aspire to greatness and then to seek out a reward at the end as the destination but lose sight of the fact that the journey is is the is the privilege of the of the destination that is the goal and and I think, you know, it's made me have sort of a, a, a re- renewed sense of myself as a scientific person, as a scientist pursuing knowledge and that, you know, the, the, the science that I get to do and I get paid to do quite well uh, for something I would do for free, you know, don't tell my boss, the governor of the state of California, <laughs> but because um, <laughs> he'll take me up on it. Uh, but on the other hand, you know, we have this great, privilege to be a scientist in the community where you know your listeners you you're paying the taxes that that allow us to do these great things and so i think that's the destination and that's the prize and to to say that you need to win this prize which really only granted by a couple hundred white swedish dudes you know basically every year um then then you know but it's morphed into this multi-billion dollar you know, enterprise, like a monopoly, I call it in the book. Um, You know, I think it's demeaning to the way that science is run. And I think, you know, a lot of people say, oh, you just have sour grapes because you didn't win it. It's actually something I wouldn't, you know, I I really don't aspire to anymore. I definitely did. You know, I definitely put a lot of my faith in my identity and I was told from a young stage as a professor, you have to win a Nobel prize or your career is going to be seen as a failure. Uh, That's just a tremendous amount of pressure. And I want to liberate my fellow scientists, especially young people, uh, but even people that aren't scientists, that that you have to enjoy the, the the journey and 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 almost do it regardless of the of the of the prize that you may or may not win.
0: I love it, man. I love it. It's such such sage advice, and I think that it's. Uh, you know, applicable for anybody in any field that's, that's striving for greatness uh, in their life. And, you know, you've done it with, with a good amount of poison grace. And, and, and I think that one of the, one of the greatest attachments to that is that, you know, you, you're the father of five and you've done some inc- incredible things, including writing this book and, and the work that you've been doing in cosmology. So um, kudos to you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I feel like. Uh, you know you and I could could sit here and have a Joe Rogan style two-hour conversation about the inner workings of the universe and uh, and I'm going to take you up on that once you know once the sort of uh, craziness of your book launch is is over and and the and your you know your twins are settled in and maybe a little bit (laughs) older and uh, yeah yeah, so so listen thank you so much for coming on the show Brian.
1: Thank you so much, Connor. It's really a pleasure. And I I do hope we can meet up someday and and hang out Rogan style.
0: Yeah, man. Well, listen, for everybody that's out there listening, definitely go and check out uh, Brian's book called Losing the Nobel Prize. You can go to briankeating.com. The the links are in the show notes for you to go check it out. It looks like an incredible book. It's live now. So grab yourself a copy. And it it just got uh, it just got ranked as something, right? I think I remember you saying that uh, that he got put forward for. Yeah, for some... it was. Uh,
1: I think it's one of the only books that's been ranked as. Uh, well, it's ranked as Amazon's one of Amazon's top ten best books of the month, and that's pretty cool because there's like eighty thousand new books every month on Amazon. <laughs> uh, and then uh, it was also ranked by the most prestigious journal in science. It's a journal called Nature Magazine as one of the six best books of the season, and you know they're nerdy, so they said you know spring or fall depending on what hemisphere you're in
0: <laughs> that's great i love it i love it well listen thanks so much for coming to the show uh everybody else out there definitely go check out the book check out some of brian's stuff on youtube he's got some great videos uh and don't forget to man it forward share this podcast episode with somebody that would love to listen to this conversation all about space uh and uh don't forget to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you are on itunes uh, or Spotify or Stitcher, wherever you are. Uh, and until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Joining me next week for another inspiring conversation with another inspiring individual.